This is No Stop Lights with Ken R. I want to thank our sponsors, Mickey Fins, Marlboro PD Electric Co-op, Carolina Bank, Pepsi of Florence. Kind of interesting uh, podcast today, Dr. Wilbolt. We were not um, available on Independence Day, July 4th. Obviously a, a monumental moment in American and world history for that matter. Dr. Bolt is an early American history professor, actually chairs the earlier uh, chairs the history department at Francis Marion with a kind of a subspecialty in early American history. And when you talk early American history, what more important day than July 4, 1776? And he gives kind of a uh, an accounting, historical accounting, a, prof- a professorial accounting of what happened on that fine day. Many, uh, 246 or 7, that would be 46, 247 years ago. Enjoy. But, but I want to go back to, um, and I'm not saying, hey, give me your um, history lesson that you would give your kids your students, about Independence Day, July 4, 1776. Um, but but I, want, I want to frame it. So they voted for independence on July 2nd. On the 2nd, right. They right. ratified independence on July 4th. On the 4th, right. Um, I mean, I think they took drunk on the 3rd, <laughs> but that's just my my opinion. But, but, but chronologically, what were the important moments that led to July 4, 1776? Well, the revolution starts April of 1775, and so it takes us a while to kind of make that, to rip the Band-Aid off, you will, to make the the break complete and permanent. And the Continental Congress is in session early summer of 1776, and the motion comes up to, should we vote on independence? They table the motion, say, all right, well, we'll pick it up at the end of June, but then at the same time they say, all right, well, let's create a committee to draft a declaration of independence, let's have it in the bag, everybody knew what the result was going to be. And so finally, of course, Jefferson was appointed to this committee along with Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, and Jefferson was delegated to write the Declaration of Independence. July 2nd comes up, and this is when the vote is taken. Uh, it's a 12-0 to 0 vote. All the states voted as a block. And to my undying shame, the one state that refused to vote was New York. Abstained. Yeah, so they said they, they didn't have instructions. Come on, guys, t- t- take a stand. Now, New York did vote later on, but they they waited. So it should have been all 13. New York said no. Uh, John Adams, there's a famous letter. John Adams writes to his wife, Abigail, saying July 2nd is going to go down in history as this great day. It'll be celebrated with fireworks, parades, festivals. Everything that we do on the 4th of July, John Adams predicted that we would do then uh, on the 2nd. Name's off by just two days. And so right two days later, uh, the Declaration of Independence is approved by the Second Continental Congress. Shortly thereafter, George Washington reads it to his troops. And again, these are some of the most important words probably written in the history of, of mankind. Uh, they inspired the people in 1776, and they continue. they still continue to inspire us even to this day, more than 200 years Later. And that's one of those things, if you could go back in history, uh, maybe just to watch our great hero, Thomas Jefferson, kind of wrestle, you know, to figuring out what words to use. And, of course, we've told the story before that Jefferson submits a draft, and Jefferson has to sit in Congress while the other members of Congress kind of nitpick, pick it apart, and say, well, that should be a comma, not a, a semicolon right there, Mr. Jefferson. Correcting on, on his grammar, and Jefferson just has to sit there 
and take this. And they cut some certain sections out uh, that Jefferson wanted to be included, most famously a section on slavery. But again, it was approved. And again, it's it's probably the most important document uh, in American history. It just it, it tells everybody, tells the world uh, who we are and what we stand for. What inspired Jefferson? I mean, is there any, I mean, do we have any knowledge of what inspired the Magna Carta, yeah, uh, Locke? I mean, did he, where do you think he uh, went to be the inspiration? In other words, what was his inspiration yeah. for the right. words he... Right. Um, Jefferson is the quintessential product of the Enlightenment. I mean, he's this this great Renaissance man. He is a, a philosopher in every sense of the word. Uh, if he were around today, he'd probably be a, a college professor, you know, just lecturing on on government uh, and and political science, if you will. And, and Jefferson had studied. He knew all the ancient republics. He was just an incredible wordsmith uh, and believed uh, that the people should be sovereign, that they should govern themselves. And this is the idea that we take for granted today, but it was radical. It was revolutionary in 1776. And people were supposed to defer to their betters, be it a king, church officials, and Jefferson said, no, no, there, there shouldn't be any intermediaries. Uh, the people can rule and govern themselves. So let's back up to the King's Olive Branch Petition. Yeah. Uh, the, the Americans, or not the Americans, the colonists send a, a letter to King George, yeah. uh, kind of a petitioning the king to, hey, let up a little yeah. bit. I mean, can we, can, I mean, but what, what was it that led to uh, the colonists finally saying enough's enough. I mean, walk us through right. the three or four things that happened. I mean, I, the Boston Tea Party, yeah. taxation, well, that, but, but, but if you don't mind, kind of walk sure. us through that. Well, again, this April 1775, you have the Lexington and Concord. And a lot of people said, well, that's just New England's problem. Well, let them let them deal with it themselves. Uh, this was a boom time in the American economy. And a lot of your planners, especially people in the South, realized if we join these guys up in New England, the British Navy, which has been protecting us, is now going to be our enemy. And so over the course, the span of the next year, King George III made a series of blunders and mistakes. Uh, he declared that all of the colonists were in open rebellion. He blockaded, he sealed off all of the colonial ports. Now, this was a, a paper blockade in many ways. It was easy to evade. But again, it, it, it was a problem for a lot of planters and shippers. This was threatening their economic livelihood. Uh, King George III hired mercenaries. Uh, this is where the Hessians come in, so they're going to do the dirty work of the king. And maybe one of the tipping points for a lot of people was in the, the colony of Virginia, uh, the chief British official guy by the name of Lord Dunmore issued a proclamation, and he promised freedom to any slave who rose up and came across uh, and supported the British. So there was sort of accumulation of just actions by the British, which pushed a lot of people who were probably saying, I don't care what's going on in New England. It's like maybe many moderate people were now saying, well, hmm, those guys up in New England, the Sam Adams, the John Adams, they're they're probably right after all, and we need to get involved. If we don't get involved, if we try and sit this out, what's going on in New England, it's going to happen in Savannah, in Charleston, uh, in other areas, only a matter of time. So what do you think? I'm going to ask you to be hypothesized here for yeah. a second. What happens if King George gives in yeah. the olive branch petition that's, a, that's a, an excellent what if i mean who knows there were there were a lot of guys who were ready and willing and of course george washington one of the wealthiest guys was ready to jump in right away but again there were still a lot of people particularly in the south uh, who were on the fence and perhaps this could have just said uh new england might have had to go about this on their own and would have had to face the full might and fury of the british government 
As an American, though, I like to think, though, eventually the rest of the colonists would have come to their aid, saying if they snuff out New England, if they if they subjugate Boston, it's only a matter of time before they're going to do it in New York and the other areas. But the king chose to respond in a very blunt and aggressive yes. fashion. He wanted all the colonists to feel the hard hand of war. Did he suspect the colonists were ready to do what they eventually did? I think he just looked down his nose. He thought they're almost like just a little fly, and he's going to swat them away. He thought he would crush us immediately. He would send a, a shot across the bow to the rest of the British Empire. If you resist us, this is what's going to happen to you. And very quickly, he realized he'd bitten off more uh, than he could chew. And then he realized he had stirred up a hornet's nest. Okay, July 2nd, we vote. Yep. July 3rd, they drank. <laughs> July 4th, Possibly. Uh, they ratified. Mm-hmm. What did they do July 5th? Uh, they didn't sign it. They they signed it sort of in chapters, bits Because many pieces. were on the battlefield. Exactly. We're already out there. And so you, it's not like the Constitution where everybody signed it on the same day, September 17th. Uh, as they kind of came and went, uh, they signed the Declaration of Independence. And to go very, very quickly, though, it was printed. Uh, several hundred copies were printed immediately. And that's one of those, another one of those holy grails. You know, if you're going through your grandpa's attic and you find... Uh, one of those original copies, uh, you can retire uh, very, very early. So that'd be a cool find if you got one. But no, the word was very, very was quickly spread again. Washington read it to his troops in New York City, which didn't even want to join us right away. Uh, a statue of King George the Third was taken down uh, by the people. So clearly there was lots of swear, and the people were, were probably ready for this uh, by, by July 4th, 1776. But, but the Constitution comes along when? Uh, September 1787. So, so how did we govern ourselves? I mean, ultimately, I mean, did we just kind of wake up one morning and say, he's bigger than I am, so he gets to make the call a day. He's got more money than I do, so uh, they get to make the call. I mean, ultimately, I mean, post-Declaration of Independence, yep. pre-Constitution, who were the governing authorities? Who said yeah. what went and what didn't go in America? Uh, you create, there's a governing document. It's called the Articles of Confederation. It's in effect from 1781 to 1787. It's a very weak, decentralized form of government. Uh, there's just one branch of Congress maintaining the idea of equality. There's no executive. There's no court system. And so, again, it's a very, very weak system of government, but it proved very, very ineffective. It couldn't get uh, – the government had no teeth. The government didn't have the power to tax uh, at, that, at that time. And so people said if the government can't even raise money, uh, it needed to ask the states for money. And the states would always say, oh, we're a little short this week. Uh, uh, come back to me in a couple of weeks. And so the government was nearly bankrupt. Uh, the British weren't living up to the terms of the Treaty of Paris, which ended the American Revolution, because they knew the government had no power, no authority. Uh, it couldn't raise taxes. It couldn't raise an army. So the British were kind of thumbing their noses, uh, refusing to respect the independence of the United States. And so this is what convinced many Americans that we needed at least to make some changes to it or probably scrap it all together. And that's well, where we get our Constitution. Well, do you believe, is there any acknowledgement of regret in, in this period of confusion that we don't really know how to govern ourselves. Hey, we just started a nation. So, you know, what would what you do now? Be careful what you, what you, you ask for. Yeah. What was there any reports of, of regret? No, I think if the, the people at this, well, the alternative was to go back under the British. And most people said, well, the heck with that, man. We, we, we ain't doing that. Now, some people were willing to at least forgive and forget, uh, maybe have a commercial treaty with the British and link up economically. Uh, but nobody is saying we're, we're going back under the empire, even if this re this experiment, this republic fails, crumbles, 
uh, we're going to go down in flames. That's that's simply not an option. But what if you were a colonist not supportive of the Declaration? Yeah. I mean, what sort of options did you have? I mean, behind door number one, behind door number two, behind door number three. I mean, what you see where I'm headed? I mean, yeah. Oh, the, yeah. Okay, we 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 agreed in in, in principle to to declare our independence from King George and and the British mm-hmm. Empire. But there were some colonists that weren't sure, real crazy about probably that. Probably a third or quarter of the population. Did we leave the back gate open a so lot. they could get out of town exactly. if they chose to? There was sort of like a gentleman's agreement. Uh, we're going to look the other way. Canada looks really good. And so that's what lots of, lots of, now some people stayed behind, maybe stayed behind closed doors, kept their opinions to themselves, weathered the storm. And so once the dust kind of settled, they well, yeah, yeah, of course I was a patriot uh, all along. No, that, that, that pamphlet, no, no, it's, that's somebody else, by the, my exact same name wrote that. That wasn't me. But no, a lot of individuals who supported the British, when the British sort of evacuated, they went with them either to Canada or back to England, quite ironically, a country that many of them had never even seen. Because uh, by the time the American Revolution starts, I mean, some of these colonies have been found in the 1600s. Uh, many of these colonies have no ties to the mother country, and so that's why it was easy for them to make a break, be it those who wanted to remain loyal in the end, again, wound up going back to a country really they had nothing uh, in common with. Is there, when is the first mention of a constitution? In early, by, by 1783, lots of people realized that the articles, it's just... This isn't, it, it's too weak. We can't get anything done. And again, at first the talk was, let's make some changes. Let's amend it. By the time you get to 1787, everybody realizes it's broken beyond repair. You got, you got to throw the whole thing out and start from scratch. And that's not, that's not Thomas Jefferson. That's his best friend, James Madison. And this is where he comes into play. So obviously the king and Great Britain, not real crazy about what we did. What about the French? What, what what countries? I mean, France comes to mind because they sure. were our first ally, I guess. They but helped us out, what, yeah. what what other nations were supportive of you know the, the colonists declaring their independence? Well, once everybody realizes that the American cause is viable and that we've got a good chance of winning, they sort of see Britain. How as, did as a they sick realize man. that, Dr. Bold? I mean, when at what point in time in history did did the world? Sure realized that the Americans had a chance. The colonists had a chance mm-hmm. to pull off the great upset. Yeah. Hey, once, they, once they kind of survived the opening salvos, if you will, uh, by the end of 1776, the colonists are still hanging around. And the expectation was the British, this could just be a massive knockout blow. This, this thing isn't going to go the distance. And so by the time 1777, the colonists are still hanging around. Washington has an army in the field. And, of course, the other the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, they've got their spies in England. Uh, they're finding out that the war is unpopular, and the people of England don't really like this. There's sort of a movement underground to simply cut bait and run. And so eventually the French, they're the first to get involved militarily. By the end, everybody in Europe is involved on our side, the Spanish, the Dutch, because, again, they realize the British are weak. We can get something out of this in the end. So, again, everybody kind of jumped on the bandwagon by the end. Who's responsible for building the system of which we elected George Washington? Now, Washington, it's once we create the office of the president at the Constitution. Okay, when did we do that? In uh, September 1787. Okay. The delegates didn't spend too, too much time arguing over the powers of the president. Everybody knew that George Washington would be the president. And so you didn't really have to worry too much. I mean, Washington could have taken, could have set himself up as a dictator at any time during the Revolution. Once the war came to a close, 
Washington famously goes to Congress and surrenders his sword. And he says, no, I just want to go back to Mount Vernon. I want to be a simple farmer. He resigned his commission. And again, he looked back throughout history, back to biblical times. If you're the victorious general in a war, if you want to, man, you can set yourself up as the king, the ruler, the dictator. That's another part of the greatness of America. Washington says no. Uh, the military is going to be subordinate to civilian officials and sets a very, very important precedent. And so once the Constitution was created and we set up the Electoral College, all of the electors met in February of 1788, and without any planning, every elector voted for George Washington. And they all did it on the same day. There was no telegraphs, no campaigning. Everybody voted. He's the only guy to be elected president unanimously. Interesting. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair of Prince Mary University, and we're talking about the 4th of July, Independence Day. Uh, let, let, let's, let's digress for one second, because I've, right. I've always wondered why this was the case. So Jefferson and Franklin are diplomats right. for the over. cause of America. I mean, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're, I mean, it'd be like a, um, I mean, in mine in your world, today's modern world, it would be like um, a company of these investors. Yeah, and they and they and they go to Wall Street low. to find venture capitalists or hedge funds or whatever they'll invest in the idea. So so Jefferson is a political theorist, putting, the, it, putting it mildly. Okay, yeah. the, the the center of his theory is unalienable rights. Right, you know, um, small limited government. People are sovereign. But he was infatuated with France, <laughs> a monarch, right? Exactly, yes. Help me with that. It's, it's kind of hard to, when you take a step back, it's, well, wait a minute, this this great Democrat, small d, Jefferson is in love with the French, but it, it was the French culture. And Jefferson, if, if there, he, he has a flaw, he is he is an aristocrat, likes the, the good life, loves his, his fancy wines, loved the culture of France, uh, the operas. But again, some of the great philosophers, Voltaire, Rousseau, were friends. The guys that Jefferson had read multiple, the guys that Jefferson could quote. Uh, but again, the other irony is that Jefferson's hero of a statesman is from England, John Locke. But yeah, but there was something about just the, this, Jefferson was just gravitated towards the people of France, spent a lot of time over there and just loved French culture. Who decided that we were going to, America gets referred to as a democracy, it's not. <laughs> Who decided we're going to be a republic? Again, everybody realized the alternative is is a monarchy. And again, this this doesn't work. There had been republics before, going back to the ancient times, Greece and Rome. They had failed, and, and this is why the people had been living under the tyranny of kings and bishops uh, for nearly two thousand years by that point. And that's what the people of the United States were proposing was so radical at this time. It had been tried before; it had failed, and it had failed miserably. And so the United States of America said, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna try it again." And thank God for us. Thank God for us for the world. It worked out, and it worked out uh, quite well. Did anybody at any point in time, I know the answer to this while I'm asking the question, <laughs> did anybody at any point in time <laughs> of consequence mention a king, uh, an American king? <laughs> we've, we've told the story before, but during the debates at the Constitutional Convention, Alexander Hamilton mm. gave a, mm. a six-hour speech, consumed all of the time, and talked about like a, a hereditary, hereditary monarch was in fact a a good thing. Okay, so you invest all most of the powers in the king. When he was done, there was kind of that awkward silence, and somebody said, "All right, next issue," and it was it was dead on arrival. There was just absolutely no support at all. Uh, 
Hamilton's friend at the time and later rival James Madison was there taking copious notes of this. And then later on, when he kind of needed to stick the knife into Hamilton, kind of leaked it that uh, Hamilton was, in fact, a closet monarchist. And so, yeah, got him that way. Why did the French eventually come on board? I mean, the French were yep. monarchs. I mean, they, they, yep. they were enlightened. I mean, they, they, they were well-to-do. Why would they... Um, why would they reach down so low <laughs> as to help a fledgling upstart like uh, like America? Well, there's the old adage, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, the French had been humiliated, embarrassed in the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War. Definitely wanted a chance at revenge. But there was this idea in Europe, and it lasted even after the American Revolution, of a balance of power. And for the French and the other many of the other nations, they were thinking that the British were getting too big for their britches. And if somebody needed to knock them down a peg, they were vulnerable now. They're fighting this revolution here in America. So here's a chance now for us to kind of get a little bit of revenge and to kind of reestablish a balance of power, a sense of, ironically enough, equality uh, throughout Europe. And again, but a lot of it, though, is just it's just pure spite. So Washington gets elected in... 1788. 1788. Yeah, um, yeah and, and then and then Adams gets elected in... He's 1796. 1796 yeah. for um, uh, Jefferson in 1800. 1800. And, and then again in 1804. 1804, correct? right. Um, so, I, I, Adams, Washington, Jefferson. Why does Washington not get the credit that Adams and Jefferson <laughs> do of being intellectually stimulating? Yeah. I mean... I, I, I've never seen a picture of Jefferson with a sword. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen one of Washington without a sword. Yeah, yeah. Were they just different people and, 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 and had different tasks at hand at, at that particular time? They kind of stayed in their lanes. And Washington knew. I'm not the, the philosopher. Washington he knew is, that, Dr. Bolt? No, I think, yes. He, Washington no, he, knew he, that he was not the intellect of Adams or, or, he or Jefferson. Up, he was up past his bedtime when he was dealing with uh, an Adams. And, and he... he, he <laughs> And lots of people would probably try and fake it. Well, I'm gonna, I'll read a, I'll read a Cliff Notes version of something. And Washington knew, and I can't compete with these guys. Now Washington is a statesman. He is a pragmatist, and so Washington, unlike Jefferson, doesn't have these great principles. So Washington can kind of say, All right, this, "What's it going to take to get this done?" And Washington, he's, he's a bit of a wheeler and a dealer. He's in the military, but again, he knows how to kind of twist some arms uh, to get stuff done. Adams and Jefferson, John Adams in particular, I mean, John Adams thought the ideal form of conversation was an argument. Uh, that's how he tried to conduct uh, his business. But again, Washington, if, if you look at a lot of the presidential rankings, the recent ones, Washington kind of continues to go up. He's the perfect guy. He's the right temperament at the right time. Who knows how different history would have been if we'd have had a Jefferson or a John Adams at the very, very beginning, somebody who's very passionate, hot-tempered. You know, Washington was a guy who just, you know, this is this is what we need. Steady as she goes. You know, not this great intellect or philosopher. Who's minding the store when Jefferson and Adams and Franklin are doing so much diplomacy abroad? Yeah, the Continental Congress is trying to keep things. Keep but the who ship- are the key members outside of those great thinkers and theorists. Hey, you we got a lot of guys regard. who have unfortunately slipped through the cracks who just really aren't that. Who would be the offensive lineman that we never so. mention or get the credit they deserve? Now there's a lot of these guys who we just have been consigned to the dustbin of history. Uh, the reason why we don't know a lot of these guys is Washington is writing to the Continental Congress all the time. I need more men. 
I need more money. I need more supplies. And the Continental Congress, the delegates, simply ignored oh, many of his, of his pleas and begging. They're running for their lives many of the times. The government is nearly bankrupt. And Washington is talking to financiers, guys like Robert Morris, saying, hey, uh, I don't have any money to pay the Army. If I can't pay them, the Army is going to disintegrate. Morris says, all right, here's a blank check, George. Write whatever number you feel comfortable. So a guy like Robert Morris, a banker, a financier, is one of those guys sort of behind the scenes. He dabbles in politics, but he's a banker. Uh, but he's sort of one of those forgotten founding fathers, the guy who pledged his own personal fortune uh, and gave Washington money at the end of 1776 when he desperately needed it, when many of the troop enlistments were set to expire. And so Washington is able to offer his men some money to stick around, and this is what allows him to make the, the desperate gamble at Trenton and Princeton. What do you make of, and this is where it gets a little bit spooky, what, what do you make of Adams and Jefferson dying on July 4, 50 years after <laughs> signing the, exact, the Declaration of Independence? It wasn't lost on the people of 1826. And for those people, there is something special, and dare we almost say providential, about the United States of America. They get 50 years to the exact date. Uh, they both die on that same day. And then Jefferson and Adams were very, very close during the American Revolution. It served abroad. But then the politics of the 1790s, they, they drifted apart and hardly said a word to one another. Uh, Jefferson served as vice president under John Adams and barely, barely said any, anything at all to the two guys. Thankfully, they sort of reconnected. They wrote letters to one another for the final uh, 15 years of their lives. And where they sort of mended their differences, buried the hatchet, and the Adams-Jefferson's correspondence uh, from about the 18-teens until they die in 1826, uh, just some of the best collection of letters uh, you could ask for. What was the driver of the division? It was it was politics. Uh, Adams became a Federalist, and Jefferson believed that the Federalists were sort of betraying the American Revolution, taking on too much power. Uh, all of the powers that the national government was taking on could threaten the American people. This isn't why we fought the Revolution. Jefferson, again, small, limited states' rights. Uh, all you need the government for is to carry the mail. You don't need a standing army. And John Adams gave a speech one time, and John Adams is five foot five, and he's got like a seven foot sword next to him. He's clanking all around, and Jefferson, no, John, this is what a king does. You're, no, you've you've gone south. You've forgotten everything that the Revolution was about. And it, sadly, it, it took it took a long time to kind of mend. The wounds between the two guys. Is there any historical accounting of a mediator? Did, did somebody say, hey, man, Dr. Bowl, you need to go talk to Dave. I mean, I'm serious. I mean, you guys, uh, yo, yo, you know, it's better when you guys get along. Did any? Is there any historical accounting of someone being peacemaker between Adams and Jefferson? Well, it's not until they're both out of office or nearly out of office. It's Benjamin Rush, uh, guy from the who served in Congress and knew them both and says, uh, it, this has gone on too long. You need to, you need to kind of you know, bury the hatchet uh, and patch things up. And again, it took a little bit of while uh, before he was able to kind of convince them. Uh, I think Jefferson made the first move, wrote the letter, uh, and Adams was probably very, very happy. It was probably saying, I should have sent this letter years ago myself. But I didn't thank God uh, that somebody decided to be the better man. It, it's, it's a great uh, dialogue. If you ever have a chance, it's been published, edited in numerous collections. Uh, really just a great testament to the brilliance, the greatness of America. W weird question. Last question. What does the Declaration of Independence mean to the rest of the world? I mean, it, 
Yeah, the idea is contained in it. Whenever there is a struggle for freedom, whenever people are rising up, uh, we saw this not long ago uh, in Egypt. It has been translated into dozens, hundreds of languages, and there were copies in Arabic, in Farsi, found on people who had been martyred, killed uh, over in Egypt, protesting and fighting for these great inalienable rights, these rights that we take for granted here in America. And it's a reminder that freedom isn't free and that there's still work to be done. Is it true the original word for inalienable was sacred? Oh, yeah, and, and, and Franklin, Franklin kind of challenged uh, Jefferson on too the, religious, too pulpity, too much like that's, that's, from the from the pulpit. And again, there was a and Jefferson didn't need to be told that Jefferson did not like any forms of of organized religion. Jefferson didn't like the fact that he was being criticized and that Franklin was changing his words. But probably privately, Jefferson said, hey, "You, so, you so maybe got me there." So here's my question. Now we're getting to the weeds here. Here's my question: If Jefferson was a deist, why use the word sacred? He's a, well, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's a man of the people. I mean, he kind of knows that, right? There's a lot of Christian evangelical people. <laughs> Playing politics. I may not agree with this, but it's going to resonate with the people. So he's a smart man. That, that is a consummate politician. Yes. Always trying to gain favor of the voting public. So even a guy who was like very, very confident at a, at a wine mixer uh, knew what touched the common man as well. Well, well said. Thank you for your time. Hey, as always, great Dr. stuff, Will Bolt, History Thanks. Chair, French American University. 1812, January 21, Jefferson to Adams. A letter from you calls up recollections very dear to my mind. It carries me back to the times when beset with difficulties and dangers, we were fellow laborers in the same call, struggling for what is most valuable to man, his right to self-government, laboring always at the same oar, with some same wave ever ahead, threatening to overwhelm us and yet passing harmless under our bark. We knew not how we rode through the storm with heart and hand and made a happy port. But whither is Sunel <laughs> Garrulity, uh, G-A-R-R-U-L, I don't have any idea, leading me into, I imagine Jefferson using a word that I don't know what the meaning <laughs> is, um, into politics of which I have taken final leave. I think little of them and say less. I've given up newspapers in exchange for Tacitus and some other philosopher for Newton. Uh, I find myself much the happier. Sometimes, indeed, I look back to former occurrences and remembrance of old friends and fellow laborers who have fallen before us. Of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, I see now living not more than a half dozen on your side of the Potomac, on on my side, myself alone. You and I have been wonderfully spared, and myself with remarkable health, and considerable activity of body and mind. I am on horseback three or four hours every day, visit three or four times a year of possession. I have 90 miles distant. I would imagine saying that. Visit three or four times a year of possession. I have 90 miles distant. <laughs> Performing the winter journey on horseback. I walk little, however, a single mile being too much for me. I live in the midst of my grandchildren, one of whom has lately promoted me to be a great-grandfather. And wow. then on February 3rd, 1812, Adams responds, your memoranda of the past, your sense of the present and prospect of the future seem to be well-founded as far as I see. But the latter, the prospect of the future, will depend on the union. And how is that union to be preserved? Uh, and then he goes into some, I don't know, try to read this, some Roman or Greek. Uh, the union is still, to me, an object of as much anxiety as ever independence was. To this, I have sacrificed my popularity in New England and yet what treatment do I still receive from the Randolphs and Shefflies of Virginia? By the way, these are not Eastern Shore men. And then he goes, oh, loquacity. I mean, it's just like, wow. 
I walk every fair day, sometimes three or four miles, right now and then, but very fair, rarely more than 10 or 15 miles. I have the start of you in age by at least 10 years. You are advanced to the rank of a great-grandfather before me. I mean, this just is such a, I mean, they're, they're, they're intellects. I mean, they're political theorists. They're intellects. They were friends. They were foes. They were friends of Ginn. Um, there's a scene in the miniseries, John Adams, when Abigail passes away, and one of um, Adam's close confidants who's been with him all throughout his political and personal life kind of encourages him to reach out to Jefferson, and he reluctantly, you know, I think it, initially doesn't buy into it, but eventually says something to the effect of, if that man were to write me, I'd certainly uh, be inspired to write back, and that began, um, you know, and I'm, I'm telling you, it's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the original transcripts of these letters are in the Library of Congress, and they'll give you chills. I mean, if you really accept and appreciate this experiment that, that's, that goes on, and I've said it before, and I'm not, good Lord, I mean, I'd be embarrassed to sit down at a table with John Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson, but the one thing I've always believed, America's not a destination. I mean, it's a journey. It's it's a most imperfect journey, and it's 300 and I mean, you want me to get real theor? Uh, here's my political theorizing. It's a big ass nation. It's complicated. I mean, it allows people to believe what they choose to believe, to act how they choose to act within certain guardrails and and boundaries. But but it was so. And I've always wondered why Jefferson was so infatuated with the French. And I mean, obviously the lifestyle. I mean, they, they were affluent. They were educated. They were enlightened, and, and all these other things. But, but Jefferson didn't care much for monarchies. I mean, he, you know, he believed the expression of free will. I mean, he went to, to his dying grave theorizing, writing, you know, um, promoting, advocating for, for the thought notion that man should be allowed to choose his own course. Man should be allowed to make mistakes and, and reap, you know, the, the, suffer the consequences, make great decisions and reap the benefit. And, I mean, it's just such a uh, – it's not just an important moment in American history, obviously – that's the case, but but an important moment in world history. And I've always, I mean, I don't know how to answer this, but I've always wondered what people around the world thought, drinking a beer about America or the colonists taking on uh, the great British Empire. You know, have they lost their mind? And, um, and, I, and I go back to the soldier, excuse me, the prisoner exchange between Marion, General Marion, and one of the, uh, one of the Redcoats, and he went back and said, look, th these people believe in this. It's not just that they're damn good at fighting in the swamps. I mean, they believe in what they're fighting for. They have an intense desire to be free. And I think mankind has an intense desire um, to but be free. Don't you imagine people around the world were like, oh, that's never going to work. Yeah. There's no way. Well, I mean, that, that'd be like, I mean, do you believe in miracles? Yes. You know, Al Michaels calling the last 30 <laughs> seconds of the hockey match between, you know, the Russians and the Americans. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's led to, and, and, I, and I say this, you know, we like to believe the founders were somewhat monolithic. They were not. I mean, they were rascals. They had a lot of different beliefs about a lot of different things. But, but the, the cornerstone of that group of men was a burning desire for man to be free, free from government, free from being told what to do. I want to thank our sponsors. Carolina Bank serves communities throughout northeastern South Carolina, offering a wide range of services to meet every personal or business need from straightforward accounts to complex finances. They're prepared to help you reach your financial goals. Carolina Bank, banking on tradition since 1936, member 
FDIC. Pepsi of Florence represent the entire product line of PepsiCo, one of the world's leading food and beverage companies. Pepsi of Florence also serve brands from other great companies such as Dr. Pepper, Canada Dry, Lipton Tea, Gatorade, and various regional brands. Mickey Finn's largest South Carolina liquor wholesaler serving every county in the state, largest bourbon selection statewide. They ship wines to 43 states, opening soon a new beverage warehouse across from Bucky's on I-95 in Florence. They support USC athletics, including Williams Bryce and Colonial Life Arena. Marlboro PD Electric Co-op, if you're in big business and looking for an industrial park in the south to build your new plant, consider Marlboro PD Electric Co-op's new PD Commerce Center, uh, an industrial park located at the I-95 exit in Florence, South Carolina. Check it out at mpdcoop or pdec.com. 